You're listening to the Pursuing Alpha podcast, hosted by Charles Brandon Snyder. Hey, man, we're live. Yeah. Glad to be here, man. That's good. That's good. We haven't done one of these in a couple weeks. It's kind of been crazy, uh, going crazy with just the office stuff and all that. So um, I'm excited to have you here, and and, uh, man, it's going to be a fun one today. This is one I've actually been wanting to do for a while because we've had so many people on really talking about what they do this is kind of our time to talk about us for a little bit and what we do and how we help people so you know take a few seconds and introduce yourself well uh most of y'all might know me most of uh our clients yeah yeah name's gustavo uh born and raised here lubbock texas uh graduated from uh, monterey and then uh from monterey i went to uh, tech went to the personal financial planning program that they have there and uh graduated uh 21 december yeah so cfp now right oh you yeah. can't actually use the <laughs> cfp title I, yet i can't yeah but I you can't. passed the cfp exams I, I did yeah i did i believe i was actually first of my class to actually pass that's awesome so yeah i mean it was it was it was a stressful it was a stressful situation it was um so what is the cfp first so the cfp actually stands for certified financial planner so you're it's uh, certified yeah so it's, <laughs> it's it's actually trademarked by the cfp board so there's only certain instances where you can actually use the cfp and you have to use it in a certain manner it's they're very specific with how you want they want to they want you to use it um you can't advertise yourself as a cfp unless you have the uh, ethics hours uh, experience and education and so you passed the exam. Yep. And I got the education, and uh, now I'm working on the hours and the ethics. So uh, within, I'm expecting to get the marks within about two years, maybe. I know. I need to work you harder. Yeah. Get it a lot quicker. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you there. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, don't work, you don't work me hard enough. Uh, yeah, right. You need to give me more. Yeah. I think you're one of the hardest working guys at our shop. Well, I, I try, man. Like, I've always grown up to have a hard work ethic just seeing my parents work and seeing how they uh my parents are actually from mexico ah, uh, we gotta yeah. have a conversation about that here in a second yeah <laughs> so i uh before we go there though you got to talk about it. so you, a pfp program at texas tech texas tech is known as like the top financial planning program in the country isn't it that is true yes. yeah it's pretty salty. I mean, they're they're really really good uh, planning program there, and so we've looked at it for a long time. I was really lucky on on hiring you here at Alpha Capital, and and man, having you on the podcast, this will be a lot of fun. So I wanted to dive into a couple of things. Definitely want to talk about your parents uh, coming mm-hmm. over from Mexico and how that's changed the whole family dynamics there. I actually want to talk about how you actually went to school. I think it's one of the <laughs> reasons I hired you. One of the most amazing things about you. Is the uh, and it really speaks to your work ethic, and the, but before that, kind of mention what you do as a non-certified financial planner, financial planner here. So we use you as a pair planner. Yeah, a pair planner. So you're you're in the pretty much in all of my meetings now, which is really nice for me. I gotta say, because it takes the stress load off of me. Yes. And so you're sitting in all of our planning meetings, you're taking all the planning notes. Mm-hmm. We get together after the meetings, sometimes the next day we go through everything the client needs, and then you kind of execute the plan documents for us. Yep. Uh, you essentially described it pretty well there. 
Uh, yeah, I sit in most of your meetings, if not all of them, which is also, again, nice for me. I get to have uh, that experience with you interacting with clients. Uh, that's actually very, very, very helpful. Um, a lot of uh, financial advisors underestimate how helpful, you know, actually seeing you interacting with the clients, uh, how helpful that is. So what grade do you give me? C minus? <laughs> nothing that low. Nothing. No, you're definitely a, definitely a plus. Uh, I appreciate that. Yeah. So, <laughs> it, it's, it's neat, though. And I think you've, by going through that program, you've actually helped us revamp the way that we're actually training. So I think your, your destiny or where you're kind of going to is to be a full uh, financial planner mm -hmm. and kind of escalate that over. So mm -hmm. and it, it's, it's a mutual beneficial relationship for both of us for the simple fact that it takes a little bit of workload, so my bandwidth to be able to talk to more clients quicker is helpful for me. But also for you, it gives you the education of, I think the hardest thing in our business has nothing to do with finance. Mm -hmm. I think it's actually the communication with the consumer and the client. I think that is an art, that and is. it is something that you never master. You know, I, I second that right there. I've known plenty of, uh, plenty of students at tech who are in the personal financial planning program and then unfortunately they can't hold down a job because they don't know how to talk to clients it's tough it yeah. it, it, it is one of those things that's and i was fortunate and, and it's kind of like the destiny thing again where i've got really lucky to have great mentors in my career and in my 10 12 years and in, in actually going through it is i had to do it the hard way right mm. and i just slowly get a little bit better the problem is is when you get good at it you kind of abuse it for the simple fact is you don't keep on honing your craft. So, so every year I have to kind of go back to the, my basics and renew my mind to making sure I'm using the right verbiage in the meetings. And, and what I mean by that is it really comes down to is trying to help a consumer or client think through what they want to have happen. And it's not a manipulation. It's not a persuasion. It's just trying to bring some of these tough conversations to the forefront and present them in such a manner that allows them to open their perspective in what their options are. But you can't actually say it to them. The more you actually talk to a client and tell them what they want, the more they won't listen to you. So I, I'm a strong believer in the fact that they have to tell you what they want. And the only thing you need to do is just... You know, you'll, the old mantra, lead a horse to a trough, right? <laughs> yeah. And see if they drink, right? Mm -hmm. So you're just kind of leading them down that path to where they want to go. And the fiduciary side of it is really interesting because you have yes. to make sure you have the, the different paths lined out of all the opportunities that clients get to have mm -hmm. in, their, in the way that they manage their finances. Right. And you got to be Gnostic with it. you got to say, okay, here's option one, here's option two, here's option three. And here's the advantages and disadvantages of each That's one. That's it, right? And... Uh, and what does most guys do? They're just push. Push, the and they tell you only what the advantages are, and they mm -hmm. neglect to actually identify the disadvantages. Yeah, that's that's very true. That's that's actually a problem that we find very frequently in our industry is that, you know, working in finance, there's a lot of money involved. So, that you know, you don't necessarily do what's in the client's best interest. But uh, coming and learning from the program at Texas Tech uh, – probably the biggest thing that's pushed is is ethics is right you can only 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 do what it is in the client's best interest and it's hard to weigh through the scenarios of what's in their best interest and sometimes because there's sometimes there's two different products and they're they're as bad as close as you can get mm -hmm. but i always i learned and it took me about 
you know, almost 10 years to really grasp the fact, I don't care. I don't care if you choose product one. I don't care if you choose product two. The only thing I care about, and this is the biggest knock on me, is I think I overeducate. <laughs> and it creates indecision, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I'll always call it planning fatigue. Yes. But I'm so concerned about making sure that I give give them all the ups and all the downs and go through it so many times with them mm-hmm. to make sure they understand. And, and it's easy. And the fun part where I think we get into is when I go back into that second, third or fourth meeting and I try not to ever allow somebody to make a buying decision in that first two meetings. Right. Mm-hmm. Because if you do that in the first couple of meetings, then I don't think they internalize it yet. Right. And you have to go into that second, sometimes third, sometimes fourth, sometimes fifth. You have to ask that deep question. It's like, all right, last time we visited, you know, what did we talk about? Mm. What was important to you? What did we talk about this product? What was the upside? What was the downtime? And you get and them to actually tell you. Right. And you also ask them, has anything changed since then? Right. I mean, finances are an ever-evolving situation that can change at any moment. So, you know, God forbid you have a death in the family. You know, how does that affect your finances? Yeah, we had one this week where, where his went to Nashville, I think it was, and, you know, mm-hmm. his uncle passed away. And, I mean, his whole decision-making process flipped on its head. Right. Quick, right? Mm-hmm. And, and we were going down wealth management. Now it was protection. Right. And it was like, hey, yeah, that's great. Let's do this, but let's switch over to here. And I think that happens a lot, mm-hmm. and you just kind of have to navigate them to it. All right, so I think that kind of defines what we do. I think it's really great on how we frame it. I got to ask you here, because this is the first one that came out of school, mm-hmm. right? We've had a lot of guys come through that are part of our firm, but they all came from different arms of business and became planners or became a part of our staff. We've never had somebody come straight out of school. And you you had a stint at a pretty prominent national financial planning firm. Mm-hmm. How do we rack up? Do you think we're good? <laughs> How do I, I put him I on think, the spot here trying yeah, to call him yeah. out, right? <laughs> he is With, putting me on the spot. Um, I'd, I'd say you compare pretty well, actually. I think uh, the model that you're trying to build here um, for our firm is very similar, which actually attracted me uh, to your firm. Uh, another thing that actually attracted me to your firm is that you actually have a process that we follow. So, um, and we really uh, don't deviate from that very often, do we, we? We don't really. Yeah, it's there's a couple instances where we might, but those are like exceptions rather than the rule. Correct, and yeah. it's really a we call them narratives when there's a client narrative that sets outside of our normal process, and there's usually a situation behind it. But keep keep going on there because I I really am always interesting on the feedback on on our structure, our process because it took me ten years to build it, mm-hmm. and that's probably the one that's the things I'm most proud about is really honing that process and honing that structure inside of it and, and our allocation model and the way that we define from risk to tax to to allocations of registration of products. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's everything that goes into that model right. and it is, is pretty in-depth. Almost sometimes I think too in-depth, but <laughs> you got to cover every basis. Yeah, you can never be too in-depth. That's something that... uh that I strongly believe is that if you have everything lined out, as long as you can explain it in a way that's simple to understand to the client is you, you can never be too in depth. I, I, I agree with you on there. I think the coolest part of what we do is, is you're talking about some of the smartest people, if not the smartest people in the world are in our industry. Yes. 
and intelligence to me is taking those complex ideas and trying to distill them down into the simplest term mm. without omitting relevant facts. Yeah. I think that is really where it goes to. And our, our some of our models or most of our models, especially because we're big on, on maps. Mm. Maps are huge here. And our maps in our world is measurable action plans. Right. Yeah. MAP, measurable action plan. Right. And that's to us, that is how we build everything. And so if we can take something complex and distill it down into the simplest terms possible without omitting valid, relevant information, facts, right, on the upside and the downside and build it where it's simplistic, where no matter the sophistication, because you you elevate your conversation with a client as best as you can to their educational level in the industry. Yeah. And that goes back to what you were saying, how to communicate with the client. Yeah. I mean, if you're talking at a level of a cfa yeah no one's gonna understand what you're saying no it doesn't matter if you could be hell i don't understand half the time what our (laughs) cfa's i'll second you there i mean there's there's a couple of times where i catch some words here and there and i'm just like oh i might know what that means but for the most part it's they're they're complex guys that I mean they deal in yeah. a completely different realm. It's very complex, and and, and we know what it is. Like we're we're being a little bit mm. out, out, <laughs> a little obtuse yeah. there, but the, the the point is is like it, it, there's the CFA level, and then there's the I'm retiring, I'm worked my tail off, white mm. collar, blue collar job that's never been in finance, and they just need to build the trust with you and that they understand that you work as hard as you possibly can to return value yeah. to them. They need the guidance. They need the guidance and they want to make sure that what you're putting them in, that you, you have full conviction that you're going to try as best as your ability to do as best as you can. And we're a different shop too. Like mm-hmm. I would say 90% of the shops that we run across all have third party money managers. Mm-hmm. We do internal investing with our yeah. CFA that we have. Yeah. So our CFA and then having a couple of, you know, I think Dr. Starr, which is coming mm-hmm. on tomorrow, which is <laughs> the first time we've had back-to-back podcasts, which I'm like yeah. excited about, but it's yeah, it's a lot too. of work. Yeah, and first it, time we have Dr. Starr on, so yeah. so he's got a PhD in economics, and he, I mean he runs a major university's economics department. So I'm looking forward to that. I'm one. looking forward to that one. <laughs> I've been looking forward to that one for for months upon months upon months because especially <laughs> where we're at from a Fed level, mm-hmm. that is going to be insanely interesting conversation. Oh yeah, I mean whether or not they're going to raise or stagnate the rate hikes. I mean, and we just got through the the debt, debt limit. Yeah. 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 And so it, I think it was an absolutely horrible horrible agreement. I mean, we're we're, we're I don't yeah. I don't see a a good And this is why I really want to have a conversation with Dr. Starr because mm-hmm. I know what I know and I think he has a different take on it, but mm-hmm. when when every couple of years we have to go back and say, hey, let's – if your own government can't balance their own damn budget, mm. we're in trouble. Right. Right? Everybody else in America has to be accountable for their own budget, but our federal government doesn't. We need accountability. And I think inflation is literally theft. It, it is the government's way of theft because they get to devalue every single asset in our society – with no accountability and, and complete impunity. That is a problem. It, I would compare it more to a tax. So inflation is more like a tax where you don't really see it. You feel it. You don't really see it, though. 
you don't experience it until you're actually at the grocery store buying i don't know whatever you buy just eggs meat beef chicken anything and uh until you check out i mean you don't think it's the theft though you don't say that. so if you put a dollar on the table and you come back three years later and that dollar is only worth 80 cents you don't see that 20 cents evaporating instantly for no reason as theft that's more that's why i see it more as like a like a tax is because it does I see do, your point there. yeah it does devalue somewhat your the money that you're holding so and just how I see it is more of like a tax more than it is theft. Whereas someone's maybe just I'm just jaded. I'm a little jaded. <laughs> I think after after this year. Or yeah. No. Well, we kind of expected that this would happen, right? Oh yeah. So, we did. I we, mean, we, we, every, it had to happen every time that we hit like a debt limit or a debt ceiling, we're nearing the end of something. They always run last minute to accomplish it and we already know it's going to pass and we already know it's there's not really going to be any good benefit for the american people long term and and to your point and to my point i think it proves like the theft side and it proves the tax side so go look at your federal income tax brackets mm. have they changed very much in the last five years somewhat but not very, very yeah right. right so if you're at you know 22 percent tax bracket inside your federal right mm -hmm. your income did not go up very much right right mm -hmm. inflation went up everything else went up right mm -hmm. so now you're actually taxed more mm -hmm. and it's the invisible tax right so as you get the raises inside of there to offset the inflation mm -hmm. <laughs> all you're doing is getting taxed more yeah and not only that is that we actually had some reports come out last year that wages were increasing. So wages did increase. They just didn't increase as much as inflation did. So you're actually losing that monetary value over a longer period of time because your wages aren't keeping up with inflation. Again, they did increase, just not as much as inflation did. So either way you see it, your earnings are getting eaten by inflation. Yeah, that's crazy. Your earnings are getting in eaten up by inflation. Your salaries did go up a little bit. Could have thrown you into a higher tax bracket. Right. Right. Now you're paying higher in taxes and you're getting that double side of it. So right. I, th I think financial planning in a whole is changing in our industry. I've seen a huge amount of change, in, uh, change in, since I started 10 years ago. Yeah, since I've started Texas Tech, I've seen a lot of change. It's nuts. I think you, if you're a middle income person mm. that is starting, we, we classify it three different ways. Surviving, stabilizing, right, mm -hmm. and thriving. That's the three classifications because you got to put it into a class of where somebody's at because we have to internalize somebody's story. And so if somebody's surviving, it's hard for us. We can help them mitigate, but it's hard to save. If they're pinching every single penny to make ends meet, right. that's hard for financial mm -hmm. planning to do anything other than just try to help them survive. Right. That's why we're saying that's a surviving. And then the stabilizing class where, hey, I've made ends meet, now I'm starting to save, right? Mm -hmm. That's the class that's really a, uh, changing the most because financial planning used to only be for the wealthy. It used right. to be for the thriving class, that they make so much more money than what they need to live off of. They can actually thrive and they can go into different ventures and all that stuff. I'm starting to see that, and I don't want to use the term trickle down, but 
I, I'm starting to see financial planning actually play into more the middle and lower class, middle and lower class, and it, not in a negative connotation, but middle, no, no, not at all. right? Just saying the middle class is now becoming sophisticated enough where they're actually seeing value from diversifying their assets outside of their W-2 income and working. Mm -hmm. And it's like most people we talk to, even if it's a small business owner, is now getting sophisticated enough to know that there's some tax strategies from owning entities now. Mm -hmm. And I think the last 50 to 100 years, when we created, the government wanted people, the, there's a great- Safe. Well, not only that, they wanted people to have that W-2 income. Right, that as well, yeah. They wanted people to go to work for somebody and create a W-2 income because mm. it's clean, you get taxed. Yeah, I think Very that's, simple way. yeah, turning on its head. I would love to see, I wonder if there's a stat, Ryan. In the background, can you look up how many entities, I'm talking LLCs, companies, our entity structures have been created over the last 50 years? And so this is an interesting conversation. Like, if you go back to 1980 and you look at... 2020 mm -hmm. right what is that at 40 year span mm -hmm. i bet you the ramp of how many entities are are It'd created increasing exponentially exponentially yeah exponentially right and what i mean by that is think about how somebody takes income mm -hmm. we look at it like if you're a w-2 employee you get to take income you get an income a paycheck from somebody mm-hmm then you pay taxes, then you live on the death rates. Mm. If you are on the other side of that and you own an entity, you run the entity, you run everything through the entity that is legal, mm. that is allowed, then you pay yourself a salary, right? Yeah. So you're running your vehicles through it, you're running your entertainment through it, you know, with clients and all that other stuff, which is half the time you spend time with clients anyways, right? They're, right. they're usually your friends no matter what business you're in. Mm. And then you turn around and, and pay your kids, right? You do all of these things. So you're, you're taking income from your sales, running all your expenses through it. Then you're living, then you're uh, living on the difference and paying taxes. So it's kind of flipping everything on its head, which I think right. is really, really interesting. Would you agree to that one? Yeah, you touched on a lot of good points there. Uh, I would second the fact that I think uh, financial planning is becoming a lot more mainstream, certainly how anyone would have a CPA that they regularly regularly go to. Um, it's definitely becoming more broad, uh, something that peop a lot more people are looking at. But you touched on another good point, is that a lot of people uh, just say, hey, we're looking for a financial planner to help us with our finances. A lot of people in those uh, lower income brackets, unfortunately, there's not really much we can do. There's uh, mostly, they they can do budgeting. Yeah, it's budget planning. Right. It's it's mostly budgeting, um, allocating expenses, and uh, just trying to save as much money. But yeah, once you move up, you definitely need a higher level of sophistication in order to help these types of people. Um, and uh, on the that's insane. 60 million businesses in the past how many? 15 years. 15 years. 60 million businesses have been started. That's insane. That's that's a lot larger than that. And that's just US, right? Yeah. That's interesting. That that I think 
I think that he, here's the other thing that financial planning, and this is where I didn't understand financial planning when I get into it. You know, when, when you're new and you're mm -hmm. rookie and you're, you're learning the trade and you're learning your craft and you're doing all the things you can, it's a double-edged sword, right? So right. you got to do planning. And you usually start in that lower middle market mm -hmm. because you are not educated to the degree to be able to service the higher markets. Right. And then as your knowledge expands, then so does your clientele. And right. I think it's the, the, the proof's in the pudding, right? You're mm -hmm. not going to go to a guy worth $100 million and go, hey, and I'm a second-year guy into it and going, I think I can help you because that guy probably knows more than you did. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. But I feel, and you've seen this, I feel mm -hmm. pretty comfortable in, in rooms with high-net-worth guys. Mm -hmm. And the only reason I did that is I spent 10 years with a lot of tax attorneys, a lot of CPAs, right. a lot of trust attorneys. Yeah, and right? you also feel comfortable, I mean, talking with their CPAs and their attorneys. I mean, you know the language. You know how these strategies work. So you're comfortable in that area to talk very high level, you know, kind of uh, the client more than likely will not be understanding what you're talking about. Um, but their but other trust or advisors do. Right, exactly. So your job is more of like, okay, here, we're gonna talk and have this meeting and we'll come to you with the strategies that we came up together. The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision. This is the conversation where I think it's fun and I really wanna dive in Excuse me. I really want to dive into a lot of the stuff about planning, a lot of the questions about we get asked. Mm -hmm. And I think this is good for a couple of things. One is I want clients to be able to reference something. It's mm -hmm. a lot easier, like at the core of what we do is just serve people. Mm. And I think this goes back to a biblical belief. And if you're not if you don't believe in God and you don't have that bent, that's fine, right? Mm -hmm. But it for me, I think it's the reward is twofold. One, there obviously is a monetary reward because you're working, right? Right. But the biggest reward is the more you serve people, it's I figured out the more you actually care about serving people, the more they actually see that you care about serving poor people, the more they refer you to other people to, because you're good at it. You know, you, you yeah. turn to hone that craft in and that's the fun part of it. So I want to dive into the way that we actually have that conversation here a little bit, but I want to rewind back to the beginning. And so I think your story was one of the things that attracted me to it because we interviewed a whole lot of CFPs coming out of tech. And there was two or three that I was like, wow, this is a good fit. I'm uh, glad you chose me. Yeah, oh, man, I'm glad I chose you too, <laughs> right? Because, it, and, and, and it wasn't until after I hired you, I heard you never took out a student loan. Yeah, that is true. You never took out a student loan in college. Never. And your parents paid for? Nothing. That is insane to me. So how did you get through tech? I worked my butt off, man. You worked nights and evenings, didn't you? Nights. Nights. That is that is what I'm talking about right there. And so that's one of the cool things for me sitting in this chair, looking at where you're going to go. You're going to outdo me. I can already tell you you're going to outdo me. I hope so. Yeah, you, you <laughs> will. Because, I mean, the, the work ethic, and that's the hardest thing to find today is the work ethic. I, I – it's I'll second that. Yeah. There's there are so many people that feel like they, they deserve things before they have it. And I think our culture's teaching that. There's a lot of people in my generation that uh they do ex they do expect things, but they also 
did grow up in a different generation, so they do see the the world in a different lens. They do, and it's uh, it it's not a prob- bad thing. It can be problematic, but it's not necessarily like you were saying. It's not necessarily a bad thing. It, again, it can be problematic, um, but I think it just depends on uh, ultimately your value system and uh, how you were raised. Yeah, I could see that. The big thing that I think that that scares me with it is I don't think kids, and I'm talking about my own kids. Like I got an 18 year old that's fixing to go start a freshman year of college. Mm-hmm. I can't believe I'm that old. <laughs> I feel like a kid myself, and I'm. Yeah. It, it's crazy, but I I think kids can't struggle. Right. I think that's that's the biggest concern that I have is, and you go back to the like World War II, and you go back to that generation of everybody just there was nobody to build you up or your backstop, mm. and I think that's the thing that scares me. And I told my eighteen year old, and I've told my ten year old, seven year old, he's not there yet. So, but I've had those conversations like like I will make sure I lift you up, but I'm not your backstop. Yeah. And I think society has built it where they expect that everybody's a victim, and they expect society to be their backstop so if i fail then it's somebody else's problem if i fail it's somebody else's fault and i think that's a big problem that we have in our our culture today is that and it's nice to see somebody that says dude i'm gonna work nights and weekends i'm gonna pay myself through school so you're literally coming into this job right as a first year guy with no No debt no debt man i worked my butt off every night Never went out to any parties, never went out really drinking or anything. And uh, that's that's just water in that cup. It it is. (laughs) As as far as you know, that's just water. (laughs) No, but um, yeah, man, I've I've been working since I was 15. Never stopped. Yeah, that's awesome. My first job was at uh, United Supermarkets. Really? Yeah, sacking groceries, being a cashier. Moved me up to a stalker, then to dairy, then eventually I ended up in maintenance because nobody wanted to do maintenance, and I'm, that was the only one that was willing to do it. <laughs> that works out. Got yeah. paid, I bet. Yep, though. Somewhat. <laughs> I didn't know how to negotiate a salary back then. I was 15. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but I moved on to uh, Texas Tech after that. I worked at uh, one of the dorm halls as a, eventually uh, after a semester. I got moved up to a manager. Um Pretty quickly, I learned why I was moved up to a manager is because a lot of people weren't putting in the work. And um, I guess a lot of people underestimate that. They just they just show up and, you know, not even the bare minimum. It's just do more than what's what's expected. You know, if you see something on the ground, just pick it up. A lot of people just used to walk over trash on the ground and be like, actually pick it up. So I guess that value was communicated in a way that people see it. Yeah, I mean, they really do. They see the effort that you put into your work. They see the how much you care. You know, if you just show up to work and just slack off, then <laughs> expect to not have a job in a couple of weeks. Yeah, right. <laughs> it takes a lot longer to go through those and, and identify the people that work. It's a lot harder. It's um, it's very difficult nowadays. I do hear a lot of the time that my generation's a lot lazier. Um, I don't I do. think they're lazier. I think their focus is different. It used to be yeah. I work really, really hard to support my family. Actually, yeah, I, I do somewhat agree with you, considering that in in the world of social media that we're in now, you can become famous on any platform. You don't really have to have any real, for, 
real work ethic because obviously have being an influencer and all that you have to put some work in it's just not physical labor mm-hmm. you're probably putting in hours mm-hmm. but it's it's definitely not the same as clocking in and a, a job and then doing your shift and then going home and you know it's it's a completely different space and environment I totally agree with you on that. And I think that there are so many ways to make money now. Traditional employment is changing. Right. And so there, there, there's a class of people now that says, hey, I don't want to go work and make fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 a year when I can go home. I can grab a computer. I can yep. work remotely. I can do some little side projects here and there on Fiverr or whatever that the application is and just make – and just make two or three different jobs to generate revenue, and they're all making twenty, thirty thousand dollars. And you look up, and you're making fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars a year. It's very and, easy to get discouraged. And very easy to get discouraged. Yeah, and and so you get to make a choice, and the choice is is very simple: is do you want a career where you're building a career path that you're building something? I think that's is what we do here. Is and you you've seen it like I. I would say my work ethic has really changed over the last two or three years. Mm -hmm. And I I try to have more time out of the office because when I get in the office, I am just constant. I can't keep focused and and because it's (laughs) go from one thing to another thing to another thing. Right. And we have four or five or six different projects, four or five or six different companies. And so I have to allocate time for client time i have to allocate time for the, this business this business i mean we just bought an ad agency what yeah. less than a month ago yep it's very very complicated your day is very hectic it, <laughs> i mean coming on board in december i mean i that first two weeks that i was here i mean you were running around with your head cut off man it was it was very very busy yeah and uh i tried my best to get on board as fast as i can to it was cool that stress for you, man. And and you saw that. Now that, that was the neat part of it. And that's the and the enjoyment I've had working with you is because I didn't have to tell you. And I, I would say if you're ever looking at hiring people and you're a business owner, the guys that actually and I, I tell this when I onboard people, your entire job is to make my life, my job easier. Yeah. Right. And and that's the guy above you, the guy below you, the guy around you. It just make yeah. their job easier. And that's all working and that's the communication side of it, right? Yep. And so one is you got to get along with the people you work with. I think that's undervalued. Definitely. Undervalued, right? And I, and the culture here, I preach culture at our firm so much because I've gone through a really bad culture. Mm-hmm. And then now we're at such a cool time where we, hell, half the time we get off of work and we sit back and we just all cut up and have fun at, you know, five thirty, six o'clock at night. And then yeah. we look up and we go home to our families. But culture is such a cool thing because you really got to enjoy it. And then the second is, is you just got to, jump on whatever's hanging out there that says hey you know i can tackle that i have a little extra time i can take that off of this guy's hands take that off of you know without stepping on people's toes and making sure you stay in your lane a little bit but you got to you know just take it in there and even harrison was talking about this and he's the head of our ops department and he was like man the guy just i didn't have to teach him a whole lot like he just jumped in there and figured it out and it was neat because i've never hired an actual cfp where we don't use the traditional financial planning tools that are on the market today what does that what does that look like like education stuff yeah so you know what i'm talking about there's a couple of softwares that are financial planning softwares oh, right you're right right and then okay. th- there's a couple of them out there we don't really use those we don't 
I think they're old and outdated. And we're actually building our own financial planning software. Yeah, we're trying to build it in a way that is open architecture. I've been there. Yeah, I've been there. I've in terms of I mean hopping on what you were saying earlier. I mean I've I'm lucky enough to have had some internships outside of this job where I was able to access uh, different financial planning softwares, how they worked, uh, what was the pros and cons. So I'm. I'm not saying I'm an expert, but I've definitely used yeah, them. You're for certified years. in one of the major ones. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm actually I'm certified. Actually, yeah, um, and that's so the one we use the least. Mountain. Iro- ironically, yes, it's. Um, and the only reason we use it's it is because it's clunky. It is clunky, it's right? It's very clunky. But it's data aggregation is one of the things. What that means is that you can aggregate all your accounts into one window, one scene, and so you can see everything. And so if you have yes. all these different banks and you have all these different accounts w- at our institution, you can aggregate mm-hmm. it down. So that's the only reason we use it. Yeah. And, and that's pretty uh, common. Why I like um, just coming from the like the platform side of using like the softwares and everything, I can give you input on uh, – how to do uh, the software, how to, what's the pros and cons that I see that we can provide value to clients and uh, how we can make it, how we can maximize its efficiency um, to be as simple as possible mm-hmm. uh, for client view, client data. You know, if they want to look at some numbers, they want to make a buying decision on a certain asset that they're trying to buy. You know, can we, are we able to portray that in a way that is simple and easy to understand. And that's where I think the old mantra or the old softwares were actually really built upon. It's a prestigious thing to have a financial plan. Like these, these financial planning companies put value in the actual plan itself. Mm -hmm. And we sit down and tell clients that I don't give a rip about the physical commodity of the plan itself. Yep. The plan's always changing. The plan's always changing. So this 40-page document that you got from these huge planning softwares that you come out of them, yeah. there's a value there. But the value is very diminished because if, if it's 40 pages long, how many clients will read it? Zero. Zero, Zero, right? And most of it is just CYA from some SEC or FINRA regulator. Yep. Yeah, that's all it is. is it's got to make sure all the language is in there, so it's CYA, right? And we do that because we have to do it, right? Mm-hmm. It's the, the industry's built on that structure. But mm-hmm. what we see value in is the one page of the plan. Yeah, that's very crucial. I second that yet again. I mean, coming out of Texas Tech, I had to literally construct a financial plan in Excel. So they gave us a case study, and then uh, we went through an entire semester where we built a financial plan in Excel. And that was a pain in my butt, man. It I bet it was, but it's simple, right? And it, 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 was, it was simple, right? Yeah, and uh, facts and everything that went into it. They wanted us to see if we could um, jot down all the information, make it nice and concise, and see how we would explain it to a client in the simplest of forms. Hmm. Which is what we're trying to do again with our software, and. Uh, so that's where I think maps come in. Mm-hmm. And I think there's different maps. So I'm not saying that our entire financial planning software is one page, but I'm saying every narrative, whether it's allocation of assets, mm-hmm. is one page. Right. Whether it's protection of you and your family and risk management is one page. That's also one page. Right. And it's every single, and you go down that list inside of there, it's all one page. Withdrawal, we call it the withdrawal map, mm-hmm. right? It's one page. And so all you want to do is never be able to switch from the way that you own assets or companies. It's crazy how many co- 
clients that we have will own five to 15 companies. Yes. And it's, it's no longer owning one company. I go to work and I own an electrician company as one entity. They'll have an entity for their operating entity. They'll have an entity for all of their, their assets. assets. Then they'll have an entity for their real estate assets, mm -hmm. right? And then they'll have this, this splintered off marketing ass, uh, company, right? Mm -hmm. Kind of like what we do. I mean, I think we're up to like nine or 12. I don't even know what it is. Jennifer manages all that. But we're up to a massive amount of entities that we have to do. And it's a painted butt. You know, pays for our C our CPA. We keep his lights on. You know what I'm saying? The cost of of our own internal CPA that we have to pay to have all those entities. But now you have to have it. That's the way the industry is actually in the world going. of going. Is you got to have a lot of different entities for different purposes. Mm. And people that are hearing this for the first time, they're going, "What in the world are you talking about?" Well, there's different taxations on different assets. Mm. So you don't want to own. Typically, I'm not saying this is absolute, but I'm saying typically you don't want to own real estate inside of an escort, mm -hmm. right? Your stepped up at basis is different the way your tax are, but you don't want to have a partnership if you're a profitable company and, and without having an escort. So operating entities are taxed differently through an escort because you get QBI, mm -hmm. right? Compared to, you know, partnership that you have inside of an LLC, mm -hmm. you know, so every one of these entities are just taxed a little bit different for maximizing your tax uh, strategy that you have inside of it. And financial planners have turned. I got to quit drinking Red Bull. <laughs> financial planners have turned into the good ones. And I learned this from Wes, and and if y'all haven't seen Wes Young, um, Wes is an amazing financial planner. But most, the greatest financial planners I've seen ever become expert in tax. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying you're a CPA, I'm not saying you're a tax attorney. We have those guys on our staff. Mm -hmm. But what I am saying is that you need to understand how taxes play a part because you can't build wealth unless you understand tax. If you're giving yeah. up 40% of everything you build yeah. to the government, it, it's not like you're stealing from the government. You're just effectively using what the law allows you to use. Right. Yeah, it's not the most efficient use of your money. Nah. And yeah. so most clients don't have the time or energy to become experts. Yeah. Right. And so we explained it to clients that it's it's simple and we're in Texas. So football is everything. Right. <laughs> As I always say, I'm the quarterback. Right. You're the coach. You tell us which play to the clients, the coach. You tell us which play to run. Right. We'll make sure the guys are lined up on the field in the right manner and we'll throw the ball to the right guy. So if you need to talk to a CPA that's diverse in what we're talking about, yeah. we'll, we'll point you to two or three of them that we work with. If you yeah. need a tax attorney or trust attorney or special needs attorney, right? Yeah, that's if another you, big thing right there is huge. that a lot of people say, yeah, I have an attorney. Well, yeah, is it the type of attorney that you need for the situation that you're doing? Yeah. Yeah. Are you having your business attorney do your estate plan? No. No. It, it Well, a lot of them do, but it's it's <laughs> not. It, Again, it's not the most efficient yeah. use of your money. And, and, and it's, it's, yeah. the, the greatest story I ever tell everyone, I was like, great, that's awesome. I was like, hey, we can go and we'll have a conversation. We'll include this attorney. But when's the last time that you went to um, your, what is it, the foot doctor? Now I just lost me. See, I went blank <laughs> right there. Podiatrist to get brain surgery. Yeah. Right? When's the last time you went to your heart doctor to get brain surgery done? Mm. And they're like, what are you talking about? And I was like, that's what you're referring to. Everybody thinks an attorney is an attorney, an attorney right? Every Everything. Form of, yeah. Yeah. And, and it could be further from the truth, right? So most attorneys, you either have a small market attorney that kind of does a little everything. We call them the generalist, mm -hmm. right? And and they're not bad. They're not good. They're just 
you know, sure. small market generalists, right? And there's financial planners that are generalists. There's, uh, there's nothing wrong with it. Right. But sometimes higher net worth and mi middle market or business owners, they need to go to an attorney or a professional that specializes in that specific thing. And right. so we aligned ourselves with we have a patent attorney. We have a trademark attorney. We have a probate attorney. We have a special needs trust attorney. We have a tax attorney. We have every single one that you can figure out and find out that you yeah. need. And sometimes you don't need to pull that lever, but it's nice to have that quiver in your, in your, you know, bucket yeah. here to be able to shoot that bow whenever you need to. Yeah. It's uh, exactly how we tell clients is that, uh, you know, estate attorneys, essentially the, the ones that we refer out, uh, they make their money fixing the mistakes that past attorneys. <laughs> <laughs> the, the bulk uh, of their money. Yeah. yeah. It's screwed up. Right. <laughs> it's funny. And so what's nice about us is, uh, we, we learned a long time ago, and this was hard to get through our broker dealer and our, and so we created our own registered investment advisory firm, our, our, our RIA, is we created it so that we could actually have these guys on staff. Right. So we don't have our own set of tax attorneys. We have our own set of trust attorneys. And these guys came from an industry, all they do is do strategies. Mm -hmm. So their entire job is to frame these things right and then we pass these concepts on to their attorney. Mm. So they're getting the best of both worlds. They don't have to spend 50000 or 20000 or $30,000 just to come up with this cool strategy that is most effective for their plan. Right. We provide that, but then we go and hand it off to an attorney, their attorney, mm. or we provide them an attorney and say, hey, we can't act as your fiduciary. We can't act as your attorney. So go get this double checked and make sure you go do it. Now, I think that's the right way to do it because that's yeah. the fiduciary way. Back to, to what you were saying is that we're essentially the quarterback of the team. Perfect. We have to gather the team and make sure every little piece is being, we're not the micromanager, but we are t giving them the overall broad structure. Was, sometimes, actually, we are the micromanager. I mean, we're telling pushing the client's, client's story. Forward. Yeah. yeah. Pushing the clients forward. It, it, and I think that's the biggest thing, and telling their story. And yeah. I, think that, I think you hit the nail on the head. And, and so... Uh, most attorneys or most professionals in the industry are there to execute. And so there's very few yeah. of us are there to document their story to give them the most efficient way to execute. Right. And most of the times you have instances where, say, they're not – their CPA, just as an example, they're executing the most – you know, the most tax write-offs, the most tax deductions that they possibly can, but they're not looking at the big picture. They're just looking at what's the most amount of money I can save this year and Damn. then push it off in next year. And then, you know, you might have some yeah. tax liability next year that all of a sudden you're not prepared for. Right. Because you didn't have that quarterback. You instead just uh, had a CPA who, again, it, he was just doing his job. Mo making it the most effective this year. Right. But it might not be the most benefit to the client because again it's it's doesn't usually fall in line with their story you know you're not telling your cpa every single little detail that you're buying in your entity that you're expensing you know all this all this stuff and they're essentially just there to make your tax return compliant right on time and compliant on that's time their, and compliant that's yeah. their only job right and so we try to help it help them make it most efficient and i think right. that's important the, the thing that I thought was cool in this, and this is where really I'm going to pick on the ag industry, right? So most ag guys that I've ever worked in my life, they, they do two things. One is they, they learned and they're really good at growing a crop. Yeah. 
right? Whatever that's a crop of horses, I mean, crop of horses, crop of cattle, crop of cotton, yeah. right? It doesn't matter, right? They're all in our book is the same, right? That Schedule F is a really cool thing. Um, the, the hard part is they never want to pay taxes. So they prepay, they do all these things that could be efficient for them this year, and it absolutely screws them when they go to long exit term. long term. Yeah. And I, I will say absolutely screws them. And I, I think most CPAs are catching on to it now. But early in my career, I was like, why are you doing that? You're just pushing the ball down the road. And everybody thinks that tax deductions or tax deferment, mm. it's not a tax avoidance. It's yeah. just deferment. Yeah. You're just deferring that tax liability to some time in the future. But if you defer, 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 defer for 25 years, you're either waiting for you to unwind progress and lose everything, right? And yeah. then you don't owe the taxes because you're just – going negative yeah. or you push it to a point where you can't defer it anymore. And, and instead of paying a little bit in a 10 or 15 or 20 or 30% tax bracket, yep. now you're paying something that was you know, for 10 years in a 15% tax bracket. Now you're paying everything in 39.6 yeah. and you actually increased your tax liability because you kept on deferring, deferring, deferring. Yeah. And the ag industry is really good at this um, as far as deferring. And all they do is they prepay their, their feed, right? Their fertilizer, mm -hmm. their seed. And then right. they turn around and buy that green and red steel and they defer all those, you know, all of those toys they want to buy so they can mitigate taxes to the detriment of their long-term plan. And I sat down with the, God, man, what, what were those clients? 25, 26 years old, two farmers, something like that. I mean, they're not, 25, yeah, 25, pretty young, pretty young. And I love working with the young farmers. Yeah. Because I, I mean, one percent of the population grows ninety nine percent of our food. Yeah. Right. And so the problem is, is that almost all ag producers in the world, or in the United States especially, are like almost sixty. Yeah, and it's all grown in the Midwest. Yeah, it's it's nuts. And so my biggest concern I have, and I'm being selfish here, but also the servant side to it is saying, dude, I got to educate the young ag producers. Like I gotta, I yeah, you gotta educate them. Like yeah. if you don't educate them in what we do, right, and give them a chance, because it's gonna end up being corporate farming, and yeah. conglomerates. And you're seeing that. You're seeing the wealthiest of the wealthiest of the people owning farms today. We've yeah. talked about this in so many podcasts Bill before. Gates is, is building or not building, buying massive farmlands. Massive farmlands, right? Yeah. And we had uh, Rodney Mogan on, which he's one of the largest farmers in the world, and he did it the right way and inherited from generation after generation and just kept it all in the family, and they did it the right way um i i like small farming i like yeah. the farmer that owns 500 acres to 500,000 acres i do not like the corporate farming that you're going in and you are a california or new yorker or you know or that has and they're just buying the shit out of it for the tax they have no idea what they're doing inside of it and they're just you know it's cannibalizing the industry and it's driving up the cost of farming mm. and that's gonna be our biggest concern and i'm scared about that and going back to dr star and i think that's gonna be a great conversation with him on it because that's a good question for him yeah. so it, it's really inter interesting before we leave talk about your family though because i think this is really a cool story is <laughs> your parents migrated from mexico yeah they uh came in the early 90s i believe um met here in lubbock and uh man i mean just the stories that they tell me just trying to make it is there i think their first house was a one maybe two bedroom maybe two bedroom one bath maybe one bedroom i'd have to follow back up with them but the house that i grew up in was a uh, two bedroom one bath and uh 
we shared that bed that we shared that bathroom in between uh that it was like one of those bathrooms that was in between both rooms oh yeah it was a very very small house maybe uh 700 to 800 square feet very very small and it was uh me my older sister my older brother my mom and my dad so it was five of us living in that house until we finally moved to the house where we're currently at um we did make some progress there i, I like our house um harrison makes fun of me all the time for it but that's just harrison you gotta love yeah. it <laughs> but um but your parents are what, what do your parents say my mom is a stay-at-home mom and my dad uh he works at a cotton gin a cotton gin mm. he's worked there so he's moved around in the past couple of years or so um issues with management and all that they they're not very not very friendly people that work at those cotton gins yeah it's hard labor inside of there but he it is very hard it's it very labor intensive he works uh, almost 12 hours every day and that's that's what that's what i'm saying man i get that worth it work ethic from from my parents man i've just ever since that was little they've been working their tails off to try and make a better life for us so i'm not gonna waste that no nah, and you've done a really great job of graduate with texas tech financial yeah. planner cfp and again man like it, it all goes back to it all goes back to money unfortunately man a lot our system is built around is built around money and uh working while i was at texas tech i mean uh i'd get out of class i'd say around 4 p.m and then an hour later whether or not i brought my clothes to school i would uh either just change in the restroom and just go to the because I worked at one of the dining halls as a manager. Um, I just get changed in the restroom and just start going. And since I was one of the managers, I had to close. Mm. And uh, the dining hall closed at 11. But, uh, you know, taking care of everything, getting everything cleaned up and such, I, I didn't get out till like 12, maybe 1. And start all over the next day at school start at all, yeah. 7, 8 o'clock. Yeah, morning. at 8 in the morning. And that was, that was my hell. That was my hell for good four years until i'm here man that's awesome I, i've enjoyed having you here and i think it's good so i appreciate working here man yeah i do too you're, i think you're you're a good boss man because there's a lot of there's a lot of people that i've that i've worked for that are not the most ethical i've 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 gotten blessed to work here with you because you're a very ethical person and i see that and how you communicate with clients i don't think i don't think i could work at a firm where you know they're not doing the client's best interest yeah it, it, it's a it's very shady it is and that's the the member that's the first thing I, I tell every employee that comes here there's there's a lot of things we're going to butt heads on there's things that we're going to do wrong all that stuff but if i ever question your ethics you're gone yeah another thing that uh might be a little good source of trivia here is that we always mention this in our in our program at texas tech is that you actually don't need a degree or any sort of designation to call yourself a financial planner no you really just need to trust the person that you're working with yes. and make sure they have your best interest at heart and i think that's a really cool one but off camera we were talking about something else that i thought it was really interesting because one value that i got that i didn't even consider and this is really a, one is the fact that i didn't consider it makes me think that i was looking at the best candidate for the job and it wasn't even a part of the mindset. But the second is, is what I thought was interesting is that you really holding yourself, in, even as a paraplanner, holding yourself in that room, being just a first year guy has been really interesting for me to watch because you don't have an accent 
but yet you are completely bilingual. In yeah. fact, you speak mostly Spanish in your household. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, with my siblings, it kind of goes 50 50 because they kind of grew up in the same circumstances as me, where uh, second generation. And uh, so we go 50 50 English and Spanish here. But my parents, they don't uh, they don't understand English, especially my dad. So I communicate strictly in Spanish with him. My mom understands English somewhat, and she can speak it a little bit. Um, but for the most part, it's all Spanish. All Spanish. And it's neat because there's a couple of cases I don't think I would have actually been able to be the bex- best mm. planner with them because you're actually sitting in that room with me, and, and you could actually communicate because they had a spouse that was strictly Spanish. Uh, Spanish speaking. Spanish speaking. Yeah. That's where I'd like to see. Uh, that's where I want to provide value. I know a lot for, I mean, like you were saying, there's a lot of instances where you might not know what a, where a client is from, what they speak. So it's there's value in having another person there that speaks a different language, mm-hmm. but also that understands the different culture where they're coming from and the sort of the standards that they hold. I think it's and it's really hard to actually have this conversation in our culture today uh, because you're, you're you're so afraid to offend. And and I think it's neat that we have such a cool culture in our office that we can actually have these in deep conversations about different cultures and be OK with it. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? You have to. You, you have to. And, and, you know, you used to be able to do that. I remember growing up and and being at, being around different cultures and being able to just, you know, because y'all y'all. And I'm saying y'all as being uh, American Mexican, mm-hmm. right? Is to y'all just have different traditions than what you know yeah. a German or an Italian does, right? Yeah. So I, I don't think either one's good or bad. I just think it's different, right? And Mexicans so it's neat. Are, Mexicans are very, very Catholic. They are, to s- yeah, to say the least, very Catholic. Uh, they hold a very traditionalist worldview in that sense. Um, that's, that's probably as far as I'll go touching on that subject. Um, but that being said, I also consider myself a Catholic, so. It's good. I, I think it's neat, but what's, what I think is cool about it is it opens the firm up to being more. More open. Well, just providing better service. Right. So it's, yeah. it wasn't a service I could have provided efficiently that I wouldn't be able to provide, yeah. you know, because we didn't have a, uh, you know, we had Zach way back when, which he had a master's in Spanish, and it was great to have Zach. And, and so, but it's different when you have somebody that has grown up in the culture that you've grown up, because mm. not only can you speak the language, you actually understand the culture behind the language. And so it, it's really fun for us on that side of it. And it's been huge value. We, we have a massive case that we're working on right now that I'm 100% confident that I worked on them for three years. Huge, huge uh, multi-businesses have eight different businesses all over West Texas. And I just don't think without having you in that room that we would have you know, been able to, to, to uh, service them or actually you know, implement a, a full-on financial plan. And we, we've done a really good job with that. And so I'm extremely excited about it. And I think we're going to do a lot of great work because I think that family needs it. And it's multi-generational, right? Mm-hmm. right? And it's the parents and yeah, the, the so second generation starting to run the businesses. Yeah, and so they're literally almost in the same boat as, as I am. Right. So there's a lot that we can uh, communicate on that aspect, not only on, hey, this is how we can 
help you out, but this is how we also connect on a on a deeper, more human level. And it's fun, and that it that's a cool fun. part. It yeah. is fun. That's getting to know uh, just different people from different walks of life. It's very rewarding. It is. The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision. I want to, and, and we're going to end on this because I want a little insight into the way that we do planning because I think it's really important the way that we do planning and again I I was taught by three different guys one from California one from Boston and one from Texas and over a 10-year period and I thought it was really really neat because I look back and I reflect on this and I think that reflection share lets me understand where we were to where we're going and what we've accomplished and each one of these practices that I learned from gave me such an insight and my ability to, I don't think anything's ever, you know, it's just improved upon and taking what's great from all of these and building into our own system and process and, yeah. and, and build, being able to service clients. And so we, we distill our planning down to three different terms and, and three different things um, during that it is more of a discovery phase, mm-hmm. right? And then you have a, what. Well, we consider, and I guess you can say it's four, but it's really three, but there's four different sections of it. So I'll, I'll explain that. So our, our discovery phase is what we consider our location meeting. Yeah. And and what we mean by location is I think it's cool to have this conversation with you because I, there's a question that's coming after this. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not the location of, if you looked at a map and you actually said, hey, where are you at? There's a lot of clients can't find themselves at where they're at today. Yeah. And if you can't find the se- where you're at, then how do you know where you're going? Right. And then the, you got the exact opposite where people know exactly where they're at today, but they don't know yeah. where they're going. Yeah. Right. And so this is why the map thing plays into the location meeting. Right. So mm-hmm. we help people understand through a measurable action plan, a map of where they're at today and where they want to go. Yeah. And we provide them that knowledge and that, that, that path and that process to get from A to B. Yeah. And what, what we do is distill that down into a term that we, everybody wants to be wealthy or rich, however you want to define, yeah. define what, it. What do you define as wealthy? Correct. And that's everybody's like, hey, what, what does that mean? And I actually think like it's such a relative term. Like I could tell you it this is. is the best desk ever made. Yeah. Right? And, or, or table ever made and and it's until you compare it to something else there's there, there's no comparison to it right. and so same thing it's such an abstract term to be wealthy and rich and some some people believe that being wealthy and rich is you know getting a, to a million dollars getting, getting to, to a billion to dollars a million. yeah getting to a billion dollars yeah it could be anything i define wealthy or rich is living a having enough income to support where you want to be, to allow you to experience life the way you want to. Yeah. And so to me, it's like once you hit that threshold that I have enough income where I don't have to rely on a, my human capital. Yeah. Right. And I'm not saying that you don't want to achieve more. 
because I actually believe God made us in a in, in in a way that we we want to make today better than yesterday and yeah. tomorrow better than today. And I got that. I stole that from Wes. Wes, if you ever listened to it, I totally stole <laughs> that from him. I actually stole a lot of the art of this podcast from you <laughs> on the side of there because you know I was trained off of Wes's stuff. But you know the location meeting is one of them. But we we expand the location meeting to, into the map. Yeah. And I think that's where we, you know, we differ from different people's process. And Wes really has a great process. And I think we just take into his process and we built upon it. Mm-hmm. And I think the map is one of the things that we've really built upon. Mm-hmm. My point is, so now you're on a location. A location for us is different yeah. than location for the client. Yeah. Clients trying to understand where they're at, where they want to go. And they want to define what rich is or wealth is and how do they achieve it. Yeah, we have to get them, get their grinds. Going, yeah, yeah, you know, get them, uh, get them up, get them going, and help them define it, right? For uh, that's their side of it. For us as financial planners, our side of it is it's simple. We got to understand your story. Yeah, it's like we we've had this conversation five thousand times. We know all of it, and I get, and I would say it's acting, but it's one of those things that you're actually setting those meetings, and you like, I know where you're going, seven Mm -hmm. steps ahead of where you're going, right? Because we've done it five thousand times. And the outcome differs for by the case and by the client, but every it, single time, every single time. But the common denominator inside of there's typically don't right. right. People want to take care of their family. They the want to build wealth. They want to retire comfortably. Right. Yeah. The underlying things that people want to achieve is pretty common. Yeah. Safety, safety, security. security. All those things are common inside of it. So that's the common denominator the, the hard part is is like what's important to them and how to get there right and so understanding the story so we understand how to shape them yeah. takes us into what we call the expectation meeting yeah and it's pretty clear for us and this is the 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 hardest meeting for us i would say i would i would agree with that we're trying to set the expectations of the relationship and where we see ourselves moving forward so at the expectation meeting, at this point, we've already digested their story. We've already internalized, know, and it. internalized it. And um, now we're just essentially mirroring back what they've told us back to them. Mm-hmm. You know, hey, does this sound good? Is this does right? This, is this is what this you want right? to do? Right? Yeah. And you're does getting them to tell good? you it. Yeah. And then, you know, they think about it. And it's like, yeah, the, this is what I want to do. And it's like, great. We found, we found common ground. We can move on from here. Yeah, we can move forward with it. But it sets the expectation because I think a lot of people think that we're going to provide them the service, and that's where it stops. Mm -hmm. Planning is completely different than any other thing in the industry. You're not not buying a product. No, you're you're walking alongside somebody constantly. So if they're not engaging with you and executing what you believe, it's the worst client. I would, yes, I would agree with you. You're spinning your wheels. There has to be an open communication there you have to be always actively engaging with your financial advisor or planner um as soon as your financial plans change or if you're thinking about making a big buying decision you know is this the most effective way to do it and be consistent in your communication with them it's both sides of it though right so we communicate to you you got to communicate back and sometimes that's the hard part with it where these guys especially the top a bit high-end business guy so busy he just doesn't want to communicate back and it happens 10 or 20 percent of the time and then you just kind of have that you know come to jesus meeting where you're like hey buddy 
Like I'm spending a lot of time, a lot of work doing all yeah. these things and I'm not getting that feedback from you. So are we doing, is this a good relationship for you? And is it a good relationship for us? Yeah. That's the expectation meeting. We very rarely, because we identify the clients that don't want to adhere to what our recommendations are early in the process. It's, we try to get them out and say, it's, it's just not a good fit. It's actually very easy to do that. There's a lot of clients that, you know, in that first meeting, they want to find out where they're at too. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they play ball. They tell you every all the information that you need to know. And by the expectation meeting, they're gone mentally. Yeah, They just don't want to do it anymore. Yeah, Or, I mean, even after the facts, if you've already gotten that far, a lot of people just don't want to communicate at that point. They're just, hey, I've delegated all my duties to you. You're my financial advisor. And then they come back to you six months later. Hey, hey what have we done? Well, there hasn't been any communication. What do you mean, what have I done? Have you picked up the phone and have I updated your story? No, because I haven't had any commu- <laughs> I haven't had any communication with you. Right. So communication is definitely key. And, and we're talking different from financial planning to wealth management or insurance management or right. anything like that. Right. Mm-hmm. So – I'm not talking about a product or something like that. I'm talking about strictly financial planning, and I think that's you hit the nail on the head. And then we go into the third meeting, and, and I, I don't want to say that in a negative connotation. I'm just saying that there's it's a two-way street, right? It's not a one-way street. It's not financial planner serves, and you don't do anything. It's an active relationship. It's an active relationship, and that's why we say the financial plan itself is not, it's not anything relatively valuable. Yeah, it's just evidence that planning took place. There it is. Yeah. It, that's all it is. It's just the evidence that planning took place. It's the constant engagement of wealth to the degree of the client. And I think that is so important. And then we go into the third meeting, which is, I think, is our direction meeting. And the direction meeting is just simple, right? You defined where they're at, where they want to be, and where they want to go, right? Mm-hmm. And then we defined what the expectations by both parties are. And the third meeting is, okay, here's the ideas that we have. Which one do you want to tackle? There's yeah you know, hundreds of different strategies and hundreds of different combinations. That means there's thousands of different strategies that apply to the client. Which one is most relevant to you in the season of life that you're in that actually sets forth the actual plan throughout the year? And it's that constant engagement of saying, hey, here's four or five or six strategies. We need to execute these things. We need to do these few things and it's ever evolving yeah. and it's that constant engagement and the direction inside of it and then the last one is we, we we this is new to us we actually developed this this last 12 18 months yeah as we quit doing review meetings is the review meetings is a past tense things that that i don't just don't believe in anymore i think it's actually we, we call them gain mm. so what did you gain right it, it's the gain meeting. What value did you gain? What value did you get? And I think that is the the changing of the guard when it comes to financial planning is because it's quantifying that, and that's ever-involving for us in our practice, is I don't think that is the hardest meeting to actually communicate because we have to communicate value. Right. That is our job, is communicate value in what we've done and how we've moved you from A to B and the closest thing. That's why we're developing our software. That's why we're developing some of these things. And the, and the neat thing about the software is we're actually taking very, very complex strategies like burn rate yeah. that is used in finance for CFA levels and distilling this down into small business owners to be able to understand how much debt to income that they're actually using inside their business. Mm-hmm. 
things like that is where I think the gain is. And I think that gain meeting is going to define our, our, our practice and, and we're going to continue to evolve that arm into being able to quantify the value that we provide clients. And I think being ethical is a baseline at the firm, but also on top of that is being able to quantify value. And, and Ryan is, you know, our producer here, and, and he's done a great job. But, Ryan, I think you've taken on a new path in the firm now, right? So you're, you're leaving <laughs> Alpha Capital, or are you left Alpha Capital after? Darn he's gone you know he's been gone for uh oh close to a month now and so we'll miss you right yeah so he's a month in he's gone ryan's out of of the deal so ryan's taking over the creative director um you know position kind of playing both sides of the uh, house until we get a replacement for him on the production side which i don't think that's gonna happen anytime soon but he's he's now running dark puppet and so our media company that we've had for like 15 years, he's running that. And, and we have two new additions to the team and yeah. a complete agency now and and, compl- and continuing to grow that side of it. So I'm, I'm excited where Alpha Capital is going. I really think we have a great team on Dark Puppet that's actually growing us there. And then we have our software that's coming in the middle of it. That thing is a beast, and it is the hardest thing to develop. We're, yeah, we're hoping to get this as out as soon as possible to – all our clients sort of as a we're not going to give it out to our clients just yet because we want to test it out first make sure all the all the systems actually work and make sure it's supposed to work how it's supposed to i know and um, finding developers is really hard and we very tough very tough and it, it's it's one it's a very expensive endeavor and then two it's it's very for what we do, you think there's, okay, there's this path, right? Mm-hmm. Now, when you're building out an application, and I've built two out, and I have patents in web application development. And so I've done this before 15 years ago. And so I kind of kind of have a very small scope of what it's going to take to get there. Mm-hmm. Is you have to think through every single version, every single iteration of every single path. So, so the yes. branching off is so hard to have your brain – uh, you know, go down every single one and stay consistent inside the overall process. So yeah. I'm excited to push that out to our clients. I'm excited that you're here, and I think you're going to be a great advisor, a great financial planner. You know, I, I just my, – my hope is to keep you as my planner for as long as I possibly can. <laughs> and I told you this week, I was like, dude, like I, I, you're you're growing so fast that I know you're going to want to take that leap pretty soon, and it's going to be, you know, years away because it's a three-year plan for us. But – you gotta hire. You gotta find your replacement because that. I mean, you got some. That dude's got some big shoes to fill already. <laughs> so I appreciate you uh, being a part of Alpha Capital, and I love you coming on to pursuing Alpha Man. I appreciate you uh, having me, man. It's it's been a great conversation. This was actually yeah. a really good podcast. I'm excited about because there's a lot of information here, and hopefully our clients and also some of our prospects, or uh, hopefully our clients. And some of the consumers out there that listen to our podcast can take some great information from this and they can glean a little bit behind the curtain and see what it's like from our perspective uh, as financial planners. Yeah, hopefully they find some value. I I, I truly hope that. Man, thanks for coming on the show and I really appreciate you. Appreciate you for having me. Awesome. Awesome.